Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space podcast. I'm your host, Mark Shapiro. Before we get to today's episode, a thank you first to our sponsors, Lori Bedke and Creighton University for sponsoring this episode. Creighton University believes in equipping physicians for success in the exam room, the operating room, and the boardroom. If you want to increase your business acumen, deepen your leadership knowledge, and earn your seat at the table, Creighton's healthcare executive education is for you. Specifically tailored to busy physicians, our hybrid programs blend the richness of on-campus residencies with the flexibility of online learning. Earn a Creighton University Executive MBA degree in 18 months or complete the non-degree Executive Fellowship in six months. Visit www.creighton.edu backslash C-H-E-E to learn more. My guest in this episode is Dr. Bob Walker. Bob is the first guest of Explore the Space. He is back today as we continue to grapple with the rapidly growing and expanding COVID-19 pandemic. Bob is a great commentator and teacher and educator on many things, and he has really emerged as a critical and pivotal voice, particularly on Twitter, around COVID-19. In the middle part of March 2020, he began writing these really elegant, really thoughtful, brilliantly constructed threads, and he was doing them daily for a while, and are now five days a week, and they're really superb. They are conveyors of information, of thought, of editorial comment, of some good news, of some comic relief, some really interesting prognostication, some great sourcing from other experts. And he comes on today to talk about the evolution of that process and some thoughts kind of of where we are and some really important observations about how we continue to communicate effectively, how we continue to learn how to get better at communicating effectively and the critical need to be able to do that. We close this episode with some really wonderful leadership tips as well from Bob on his experience and his guidance and his tools that he uses around making hard decisions. So definitely take yourself all the way through. This is the extended Twitter thread version of Bob Walker. Before we get to the episode, just want to remind everybody, please do subscribe and rate Explore the Space wherever you like to download your shows. You can find me on social media at ETS Show or on Instagram at Explore the Space Show. In the show notes, there's a link to Bob's previous appearances on Explore the Space, and you can find the archive of the show. We are closing in on 200 episodes at www.explorethespaceshow.com. It's important to note also this episode is being published at the early part of July, and we are coming up on the 4th of July weekend. Just want to urge and encourage everyone who's listening to please follow the recommendations to keep yourselves and your families and your friends and your colleagues safe. If you are out of your house, please wear a mask. Please continue to physically distance yourself. Please continue to wash hands. Take care of yourselves. There is so much at stake. Those recommendations have demonstrable benefit. They are safe. They are effective. Please wear your mask. So now, without further ado, Dr. Bob Walker. Bob, welcome back to Explore the Space. It's a pleasure to have you. You you were at, you were my first guest five years ago, and and we're back. So thank you so much for coming back. That's amazing. Well, congratulations on keeping it going for, for yeah. so long. 
Thank you very much. You have long been a reliable voice and writer of kind of the high level view of various topics in medicine and in healthcare in general. You have, in my view, really hit your stride in this COVID pandemic with the threads you are creating on a social media platform that I really enjoy, which is Twitter. You're creating these long, dense threads that are packed with information for us every day of the week. I want to just take a minute and, and find out the genesis of this, because not only are you doing the work, but they are really good and they've become very, very popular, not just with people in the health sciences, but I think the population at large and just people keep finding it and finding it. What was the genesis of starting to create these really long, interesting, thoughtful threads packed with fact and also packed with relevant opinion and editorial comment? Well, first of all, thank you, Mark. I appreciate it. I'm glad that they've been uh, they've been useful. The genesis, uh, first of all, uh, you know, the, my work, uh, my world on Twitter sort of reflects, I think, all of our worlds and our attention spans. About 15 years ago, I started blogging when writing a ten, you know, writing a thousand or fifteen hundred word piece seemed to be the best way of getting your information out to the rest of the world. And now, of course, it's done through 280-word uh, aliquots through through Twitter. Um, but I like the forum. I, I, I think it's a forcing function to make you be uh, brief and clear and the ability to weave in uh, videos and audios and, and, and link people to other places. is It's just a really rich way of getting information out while being forced into brevity. I think that's, that's, that's been quite helpful. Um, the genesis for me was really interesting. It was March 18th. We had not been hit yet at, at San Francisco or at UCSF, but we knew it was coming. And the time, and you remember, it was felt frantic. You kind of, you'd seen what happened in China, saw what happened in Italy, saw what happened in Seattle and on the cruise ships. And the feeling really was of standing on the shore and waiting for the tsunami. And I just sensed huge amount of fear, not that much misinformation yet. That was to come later, but uh, <laughs> yeah. big information vacuum. And, uh, and, and interestingly, you know, I run the biggest department at UCSF. I have 800 physicians and 3,000 people that work for me. And every day I make a ton of decisions. Many of them feel like they're important. I've got to spend a lot of time on them. I found myself having almost nothing to do which was remarkable and what it what it what it happened was at UCSF and at healthcare institutions all over the country man centers had been set up and the command center, I'm actually very proud, uh, was led mostly by my mentees, mostly hospitalists. Uh, they were spectacular, but it was a form, it was a medical form of martial law. They, they took over everything. And so there were actually no decisions to be made at the departmental uh, level because we weren't doing anything other than preparing for COVID. Everything else had stopped. There was obviously no, you know, no innovative new things to do. It was just, let's get ready for the tsunami. So, at, at the level of kind of a leadership role, I found myself uh, taking in this fire hose of information, 12 hours a day of Zoom calls. I thought it was the most fascinating thing I ever saw. I was scared as hell that I was going to die. And it's all sort of coming in. And I had absolutely no outlet for it because I really didn't have anything to do other than sort of rally the troops. There were a ton of decisions to be made on the ground. So the division chief and the service directors had a lot to do in terms of their schedules and PPE and all that kind of stuff. But sort of the where I lived in the organization, it was sort of taking in information, uh, processing it, trying to digest it, 
make sense of it and not much to do with it. And so one night I just sat down. I remember my wife walked down and said, why did you do that? And I said, I just felt like I wanted to do something that seemed useful. So I tweeted the first stream uh, thread on March 18th. And it was a little bit like, you know, the social network movie where you kind of look at your counter. And normally I would tweet and see, oh, three people liked it or eight people liked it. And the thing was spinning around. It was like, you know, 50, 100, 200. And I said, wow, I'm onto something here. And people seemed and the feedback was fabulous. And I just said, okay, I'll keep doing it. And, uh, and so I did nightly for better part of a month to six weeks. And each one took me two or three hours to do because it, you know, a lot of background information, a lot of processing. Uh, now I'm down to the threads being two to three times a week, uh, you know, lots of, uh, tweets in between, but the, the sort of concerted two or three hour misses, I, I do two or three days a week, which feels like about the right rhythm given, given a slightly decreased, uh, fire hose of information. It's, I, I've been I've been enraptured by them and I look forward to them. They come out at night, and so I, I kind of one of the last things I see before bed. And sometimes it dings my sleep because I'll read something like, "Oh my gosh, I didn't know that yet." And sometimes I'll read something that makes me laugh. You've tweeted out some funny things that kind of along that vein of uh, some good news, the John Krasinski thing. You've kind yeah. of provided some of those things for us too. Yeah, you put the a dog, fact in. The funniest was the dog videos. The, the yeah. dog videos were those were the best for sure. They were absolutely hilarious. Part of what I've always tried to do is without is there a way of of not forgetting the fact that this is massively tragic and horrible and scary uh, but also you know we're human beings and there's a role for humor and there's a role for you know sort of reflecting the other parts of our our existence and i think you know what i've tried to do in the tweets is that the, the bulk of it is just information and analysis and one of the things, as you know, I like to do is, to me, this is such a multidimensional crisis. There's, there, are, there are medical pieces, there are policy pieces, there are political pieces, there are economic, there are issues around disparities, it's international, it's, uh, uh, you know, it, 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 it's ethical, it covers everything. And that's my sweet spot. I kind of, I'm not an expert in anything, and I kind of know a little bit about all those things and really like, as a generalist, trying to synthesize them. Uh, but in all of that, I also felt like what got me started in the first place was giving people information about what was happening here in San Francisco and at UCSF. So I always start out with, a you know, here's kind of the daily update and then try to end sometimes on a hopeful note every now and then on a funny note, but something that sort of brings it home. And, uh, you know, sometimes some days it's obvious what that is. Sometimes it's a little bit of a struggle to figure out how to how to close. I like the way you frame it. It does take you on a ride. And now 93 threads deep on the day that you and I are recording, I, I can identify that rhythm and I actually like it. I kind of know what the ride is going to look and feel like. And I really enjoy that. It's maybe it's just nice to have something that's maybe just a little bit predictable. I'm going to get a thread from Bob. It's going to be, you know, nine or 10 at night Pacific time. I'm going to get the UCSF update, which is nice for me, right? You're about 60 miles away from me. And then it's kind of what was Grand Rounds like? What were the topics covered? Here's some hard science. Here's some editorial thoughts. But the one that you put yesterday actually was one that I think made my jaw drop the farthest. And it was a comment from one of your colleagues, Dr. Colleen Kivlahan. And I hope I got her last name right. That's she right. had COVID-19. She's been experiencing prolonged symptoms. And oh my gosh, phantosmia. She is experiencing the chronic perception of smelling something. And she's smelling forest fires. Right. For us in this region, I cannot imagine what that must feel like. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I'm just, I, I, it was one of those, you know, you think your senses are so 
vivid can imagine, or it actually is almost hard to imagine, not just the smell of forest fires and then the PTSD for people that have lived through forest fires, but she's in sitting in her house periodically. It's like, is the house on fire? I mean, oh my gosh. Imagine living with that. I mean, one of the things that struck me with that comment was the 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 surprises that this virus has had in store for us. And just if it doesn't create some humility on the part of all of us, that the minute you think you understand it, you realize, wait a second, it causes blood clots. Wait a second. We thought the kids did fine. And now two months later, sometimes they get this weird thing like Kawasaki. Wait a second. I thought, you know, asymptomatics didn't have it and we could measure people's fever and be pretty comfortable. That's all wrong. Wait a second. The WHO said it's right. But the next day they said it's wrong again. (laughs) You know, and wait a second. Masks have become a political issue and they they demonstrate, you know, whether you like or don't like Trump. I mean, whether you look at this from the scientific clinical angle or the political, sociologic, human dimension, just every day is a new set of surprises. If it wasn't so horrible and tragic, it, or maybe even though it is, it's the most interesting thing I've ever seen. I agree with that, but you also, I feel like, have brought us to what to me feels like one of the critical juxtapositions, one of the critical tensions that we're finding with the COVID-19 pandemic. Let's look at your threads as an example. To me, they are a representation of effective communication. People will argue with parts of what you say, and that's fine, but there's a structure, there's a rhythm, there's references. It's, it's an effective communication tool on a widely recognized platform where lots of people are, so people can go there and learn from it. We know that our profession, we're not all at your level in terms of being able to communicate effectively, whether it's via YouTube or Twitter or giving a talk or writing a book. Our profession has a lot of room to get better at effective communication. Then we pair that with what you just described, this extraordinary uncertainty, this constant flexion and change and fear that right these recommendations come down, we grab onto them like they're everything, and then we're told that they're incorrect. When we're in that place of this rapid change, this rapid flow of information, and a a large part of our profession, one of the weaknesses of our profession, in my opinion at least, is that we do not communicate broadly, effectively with the public at the level of the public – is a, to me, feels like a huge problem. Do you feel like the way I've described it, am I reading this right? Yeah. Yeah. I think that, that many people, I guess until, if you think about it, until several years ago, the way we communicated our findings and our science was all through our journals and periodically something would get picked up by a newspaper, but right, right. it was all, there was no mechanism really to communicate more broadly to, uh, to lay people. And I think it was a little bit of professional arrogance to maybe believe that lay people couldn't really understand it because it's because we know we went to med school and did residencies. And if it took us that long, how could they possibly understand it? Uh, But I think we have learned that, first of all, the limitations of journals, they're absolutely crucial and the peer review process is, is crucial, but, you know, patients are not reading them. So we have to figure out other mechanisms, other ways of getting the information out. The digital has created those and, you know, a lot of different ways of disintermediating. So whether it's a podcast or a Twitter feed, you know, we all have a way now of directly communicating to people. To me, I guess one of the things that you didn't mention, but I think is a is a feature of this current predicament we find ourselves in is even when we 
are able to use these new channels to communicate effectively. Uh, do we know how to do that? Do we have the language? I remember the first few things. I, I, I wrote a book about medical errors a, a long time ago, and I and I uh, had the first draft, I had three or four chapters done, and they were like shocking cases of, of, of medical mistakes. And I described them for a lay audience, and I thought I had done a pretty decent job and sent it off to my publisher. And the email he sent to me, the, the subject line was, I hope you're sitting down. And it was basically three pages of this sucks. And it, and, and it was, you know, it, it went on luckily beyond this sucks and said, you're a good writer. These are really interesting stories. But every line is sort of so cautious. And so, you know, it could be this or it could be that. And every other line is, he, he, he basically said, you're being so careful not to make any of these stakeholder groups unhappy. And he said, either do this from, you know, sing from the diaphragm or get out of my face. And I was shocked by it. And nobody had ever talked to me like that before. And then with reading and I had a few friends look at it, they said, you know, he's right. And so that was one of the things that taught me that, you know, you've got there's a way of communicating with lay audiences that we're just not used to in the medical literature. Not only do we write and communicate poorly in our journal articles, we use the passive voice too much. We're caveating everything up the yin yang. Uh, But, you know, there's a way of being authentic uh, that people either, you know, people get it and say, you know, this person is legitimate and, and speaking a version of truth. Obviously, it's all biased by our backgrounds and our worldview, but, you know, as, as close to truth as he or she can muster or not. And if you do, I think people pick that up and they come back to you for more. You become a, a trusted source. So I think that that's something we've traditionally not done very well in. And I think we're doing much better because we've, we've learned how to use these new forums to do it. And I guess I make one more point that to understand COVID, I think you have to look at it through many, many different lenses. And the people I read, some of them are you know, world experts in epidemiology and disease modeling. Some of them are experts in clinical trials. Some of them are sociologists or, or policy or political people or economists. And just like in medicine, we need generalists and we need specialists that, that, that you know, there, there is value to all of those people. There's the, my level of understanding of disease models and epidemiology pales in comparison to that of, you know, a George Rutherford or a Mark Lipsitch. And I read them and I try to synthesize or listen to them, try to synthesize it. And it feels exactly analogous to my role as a hospitalist that, you know, as I say to the trainees who are thinking about going to the field, you've got to be comfortable with the fact that every patient you see, you will be able to name five people in the building who know more about every one of their problems than you do. And you know more about all of it than they than they do. And there's some beauty in that. And each, you know, you couldn't do it well without both of those types of people. The people are very narrow in expertise, but are the world's expert on the, you know, the left uh, upper lobe of the lung uh, or on disease modeling. And we need people who are generalists who can sort of take it all in and process it and and see the, the, the linkages and the Venn diagrams between these different points of view. And then analyze that and put it out in a way that's useful. And and for in medicine, that's being a generalist. And in this world, it's being somebody like me who is really not an expert in any of these things, but is decent at pulling it all in and synthesizing it into something that's useful. You know, next week for our grand rounds, 
I'm interviewing the author of uh, or the Great Influenza, the 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 story of the uh, 1918 pandemic, and it just I'm reading halfway through the book now. It just shows that the the point of view of uh, is massively useful in this in terms of there are plenty of things we can learn from the past. So I think there is real, real value in it. And I think the, the, the availability of social media and podcasts and YouTube creates opportunities for us to communicate directly with the public. And, you know, in, in, in a crisis like this, they are desperate for trusted, uh, trusted experts to give them information that they believe is right. As a hospitalist who's in the second decade of, of their career and a history major, I, what you just said delights me no end. And I, I agree. I also do like that take, though, that we still have to acknowledge that there are experts in certain places that we can build our own expertise with and then relay that. But you mentioned a word that actually I'm, I'm glad you did because this is where I wanted to get to, which is that idea of trust. What is your sense of the public's trust in the information that they are getting from their the, from the healthcare profession right now? I think it's pretty high. I, I what I worry about is the the fragmentation uh, and the politicization of the country into you know into shirts and skins. Everybody's chosen their team, and as magnificent as social media can be, it also creates the opportunity, which I avail myself of, and you probably do too, to have our favorite podcasts and our favorite experts and our favorite uh, ways of getting information. And we're humans, and those things tend to conform uh, quite uh, nicely to our predisposed biases. So I am not going to let into my worldview unless it sort of sneaks in via somebody retweeting something that I, uh, you know, that I might not have seen by myself, a worldview that's different than my own. I I try to do it a little bit because I know I need to understand it to be to be able to react to it and be thoughtful. But I, I, you know, in the old, old days, you're too young to remember this, but in the old days of three networks, uh, your choice of which which media outlet to to feed you was, you know, was Walter Cronkite versus Chet Huntley. You know, it was basically three people on the three major networks. And they they all represented a part of the political spectrum that was pretty similar to one another. There weren't major disparities. There was no such thing as I can watch MSNBC versus Fox or I can listen to this podcast versus another. And so that's the problem, I think. I, I, I am quite comfortable with a certain part of the population uh, believing in the science and looking for credible experts who will teach them what is correct and, and basically going with it. And I like to think that the people that are following me on Twitter believe that and learn something. But I believe also that there is a significant portion of the population that would never follow me on Twitter because they would perceive they would perceive that I'm I tend to lean a little bit left and don't particularly like our current president and all that. And therefore, I became I become not a credible source of information. They'll look for others that conform to that political point of view and they will trust them. And some of the information they may give them will be right. And some of it, at least in my view, will be massively wrong. And I think we're seeing that play out now in the pandemic. We're seeing that parts of the country that were spared the first time around were spared because there's some linkage between being a coastal urban area and international travel. And so you didn't see a massive injection of a lot of disease into your community. 
But now the main risk factor for disease spread is behavior. And if you don't buy that masks work and you think the pandemic is a hoax, you're going to behave badly. And in some cases, not all, because there's a component of luck, you're going to start getting slammed. And I think that's what we're seeing play out now. The thing that I actually had kind of wanted to bring us towards, and, and this is why I love having you come back on, is you, you it's not scripted, but this is right where we needed to go. This idea, the, the virus is going to teach us whether we believe it or not. And the the place where I really feel strongly about that is with respect to masking. And you mentioned that, and it's become this politicized issue, which is frustrating. And we have large business entities going public saying that they're not going to make a recommendation. I think it was AMC movie theaters saying they're not going to require masking because they don't want to enter into a political issue. The COVID virus is not it's an it's an apolitical entity. It's a virus. Yeah, it's going to teach us what it what, what we need to learn, whether we like it or not. And that brings us to what I we're all seeing the data from different parts of the country. We're all seeing states that are surging with their caseloads, but not just the number of positive tests, but the what's happening in their hospitals, what's happening in their intensive care units. I remember in March, one of the things that people kind of clung to as a moment of hope was would this die off in the hot weather? And that's clearly not going to be the case. As the generalist, as the person who can kind of put the puzzle together, what are you foreseeing for the next few months for the United States with respect to the pandemic itself? Well, let me first comment on on the idea that the virus is the the teacher. Uh, there's no question that that's right, but it's not a great teacher. Um, <laughs> the, the, the the best teacher is I put my finger in the fire, and that hurts, and I will never do that again. Yeah. That is a that is a perfect teacher. A, a a a less good teacher is I'm going to engage in behavior that is risky, and nine times out of ten I'm going to be fine, or 99 times out of 100 I'm going to be fine, or you know, or if I'm not fine, it doesn't happen for two or three weeks, and that's the kind of teacher the virus is. And so if you if you have a certain set of beliefs. And the beliefs uh, sort of you know line up around a political philosophy or come from certain people who you trust who are telling you things that are wrong. You can probably find enough evidence to confirm your beliefs that you're going to keep on doing the wrong thing for a while. And as I wrote the other day, I think the virus is sort of like Vegas in that you can, you know, you can beat the house a few times, but if you play enough hands, the house is going to win because the odds are on its favor. So are in its favor. So the virus is a good teacher ultimately, but uh, in real time, it's not good. And so you, you know, if you're in, you know, in a Southern state today, uh, not wearing a mask, going to a bar, coming up close to people because you believe it's all a hoax and you think all this is uh, is, is BS. Any chances are you're going to be fine for a while. And you can even find examples of states. We, we, you know, we tout the states that are starting to get hot. But there are other states that have done equally bad behavior that are doing fine. And so if your belief system says that's what I want to concentrate on, you will – at least for a while. And, and and I think you can look at it in the converse as well. You know, San Francisco, we are patting ourselves in the back in Northern California more generally on, you know, on being such upstanding citizens and listening to the science and having good leaders and all that. All true, mostly. And then I think we had a considerable amount of luck. There was no good reason that we couldn't have gotten slammed like New York early on and, you know, woken up one day and been, you know, had our, had our ICUs packed. Uh, and it just didn't happen. And that, that was mostly mostly luck. So 
it's a good teacher, but it's not a perfect teacher. And it, it, it does, like many things in prevention, it provides a setup for, for uh, ineffective behavior because it can take a while for the badness to, to, uh, to play itself out. I like the Vegas analogy because I remember when they reopened Las Vegas a few weeks ago and it was just pictures of tables packed with people, you know, people wanting to get it back out and recreate and gamble. No masks, no no physical distancing. So that Vegas analogy kind of resonated. Yeah. And I also like that you brought up our region, right? And, you know, the North Bay and the Bay Area, we're, we're pretty equivalent. I think we've done a, we, we like to, I like to use the active voice. We've done a good job of flattening the curve, but I also agree with you. A lot of it is luck. One of the things that I've learned in my career is that the practice of medicine will frequently humble you. And I am quite honestly, the thing that's kind of keeping me up at night is that COVID's going to humble our region at some point. We're not going to just scoot through this the way it's been this whole time, despite all of our preparations. And like you said, kind of patting ourselves on the back. I do feel like the, the, the moment of humility probably for our region is, is, is going to arrive at some stage. I don't know. Uh, it, 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 it may, and and maybe it maybe it's more likely to than not. And 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 like many things in safety, you know, the the great safety expert Jim Reason once said, the minute you begin thinking that you are safe is the minute you're becoming more dangerous. Yes, because you let your guard down. It's natural. Yeah. We all have yeah. so much, you know, we only have so much attention span. And so the greatest risk factor for the Bay Area and Northern California is is smugness and feeling like, you know, look how good we did and we can let our guard down. We'll see because on the other hand, you know, we have proven to be a region where people people do follow the directives. We have proven to have political and corporate leaders that are not afraid to make some hard decisions. And we're different now than we were in late February or early March in that there's a ton of testing out there. And if we start seeing an uptick, uh, I have very little doubt that in Northern California, the, you know, the, 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 the mayors and governors will, the governor will, will shut things back down again. And I think most people will listen. So it, it, it's multifactorial. You know, the surges are not only because people are not doing what we think is, are the best behaviors to prevent the surge, but also that the political leaders probably responding to what they perceive their constituents would do and say uh, are not, um, you know, are, are not taking advantage of the fact that we're beginning to see an uptick and clearly messaging folks, this is scary and dangerous and a lot of people are going to die. Let's either go back to sheltering or now let's redouble our, our messaging on masking or whatever it is. They're, you know, they're they're whistling in the breeze and it's all interconnected. You know, the same people who might have a libertarian bent who would elect a leader who would believe that masks are stupid or it's all a hoax. Those leaders are less likely to act responsibly because in part. That's what they think, and in part because they're worried about making their constituents unhappy. And so you see a vicious cycle in certain states that I think is now beginning to play itself out. And I take no joy from this. It's, you know, it's going to be bad and tragic. And I think the same, I think in Northern California, we have more of a virtuous cycle where you have leaders who believe in science, who also believe that they will not pay a big political cost if they shut us back down. People will be unhappy. There'll be some blowback. But I think most people would say, OK, you know, we understand that thousands and thousands of lives have been saved by acting responsibly. And if the data say it's time to do that again, I think most people would say thank you. 
I like to think that you're right. And I guess we will we will see how these things go as we move through the summer. But I wanted to just pull out a, a phrase that you've used three different times by my account as we've had this conversation, kind of as we move towards the end. Hard decisions. You've referenced that you've had to make a lot of hard decisions. You've referenced that people at UCSF, many of whom you mentored and work with today, obviously, have had to make hard decisions. Politicians, mayors, health officers are having to make hard decisions. What is the toolbox that you use when you are faced with a hard decision? Because when we say those words, a lot of people who are listening to this show are going to think, yeah, I'm making hard decisions every day as well. What are the tools that you're using that are reliable that you've used through your career and are using now and, and teaching others to use when you are faced with what you feel like is a hard decision? Boy, Mark, I, w- I wish I knew the answer to that because I, there's probably a science to that. And when we figure it out, uh, then we'll all be replaced by AI leaders <laughs> who can do what we all are all doing. Right, right. I mean, the first thing I try to do is uh, be a good and empathic listener and recognize that uh, as a generalist, I always need experts. There, there, there are experts in everything that, who are more expert than I am, and that I'm blessed to be working in an environment where there are a lot of them around me, and there are the, there are more information portals than I can have time to access that allow me to learn what I need to learn in order to make the best possible decision. So one is just, you know, framing what is the decision about, what are the, coming into it, what are the pluses and minuses, just like a clinical decision, really, you know, what, what are the things that I need to know to make a better decision? As I'm trying to weigh anticoagulation in an older person who has a risk for bleeding, but also a clot. It's sort of what do I know coming into it? And what are the probabilities that I need to understand better in order to make the best possible decision? And does that mean talking to experts or does it mean reading? And so that's kind of my instinctive framing of what do I need to know in order to make the best decision? The second thing that I, I teach when I teach leadership, I think is quite important is different decisions require, have a different burden in terms of how sure you need to be to pull the trigger. And I've seen many leaders just obsess about pretty small potatoes decisions, in part because they're so risk averse, they're so scared of getting it wrong. To me, there are certain decisions that are so weighty that you need to take a ton of time. You need to take a lot of get a lot of information. You may need to survey people, uh, get focus groups. Uh, those are decisions that are, you know just are monumentally important. And if you get it wrong, you will regret it. Uh, you will really screw things up and regret it forever. There are other decisions that are less important, the stakes are lower. And if you obsess about those decisions the same way you obsess about the biggies, you're, you're taking too long. And your runway of decisions is gonna, is gonna back up. And you are not appropriately weighing the opportunity costs of all of that time that you spent data gathering, obsessing about these, uh, these more trivial decisions. Uh, you could have been spending that time focusing on innovations or, or going to the gym or or doing something else that's useful or generating RVUs or whatever it is that you can do, you know, going on a date with your spouse, whatever it is that you could you could do with time. I have this sort of starling curve that I have in my mind of, of how much information do I need to have to make a decision. And it's very tightly linked to how important is the decision? How costly is it? What would the cost be? And I don't just mean money of being wrong. And I guess the last point I'll make 
is the issue of being wrong. You know, I try to do my best to make the best decision. And then after I've made it, I don't obsess about it a lot. I recognize that just like the false appendectomy rate, there's some rate of those that's going to be wrong. And uh, the best I can do is when that happens, figure it out as quickly as possible, reverse my cause, uh, reverse my course, apologize for it if that's what's uh, what's the right thing to do. Sometimes laugh at it or laugh at myself and learn something from it and often uh, popularize or disseminate the fact that I made a wrong decision to make clear to people that that's okay, that we won't get them right all the time and try to role model the idea that sometimes we get it wrong. And I'll, I guess I'll end with the, the notion of, but I try not to get wrong the big, big ones. And that's why I will obsess about those. But even there, you're going to get them wrong every now and then. Uh, the final point I'll make is the notion of trust, which is when you make a wrong decision, if people don't know you or trust you, then the, the, the burden is much higher. Then they will assume that you don't care about them or you're a, you're a moron or you didn't take the time, you're lazy, you didn't take the time to get the right information. If they trust you, if they believe that you're a smart, thoughtful, empathic person who listens reasonably well and is reasonably bright on a good day, you can get away with some bad decisions because people will kind of say, oh, you know, or or a good decision that 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 uh, leads to a bad outcome. Some decisions, you know, there'll be winners and losers. So for the loser, if they see that and they say that I don't like that decision, but they know you and they trust you and you've spoken to them before and you've listened to them before, I think you will generally get the benefit of the doubt. And if you haven't created that kind of trusting environment, then you won't. And that became just it was when I was division chief for hospital medicine, I had 50, 60, 70 doctors who work for me. And the way I created that trust, I think I did, uh, you know, you never you're the last one to know, but I think I did was, you know, we'd have lunch together once a week as an entire group. And I'd start out telling them kind of what I was seeing out there and then asking them for what they were seeing and trying to and, and we had fun and we had lunch and, you know, we talked about all sorts of things. And part of it was a strategy to make sure that they saw me as, you know, whatever they think of me, they saw at me as an authentic person who's is not all that stupid and probably and is a decent listener. So that when I made a decision they didn't like, they usually would sit, say, you know, maybe there's something here I don't understand. And if I did, I would probably understand why he made that decision. When I became chair of a department that had 800 faculty and 3000 people and was spread across five or six or seven different sites, I can't have lunch with people once a week. And so you have to be very thoughtful about what is your communication strategy to both hear things, but also to communicate out to people uh, a little bit about who you are and where, what decisions you're thinking about. And every time I hold grand rounds or uh, send out a newsletter, or send out a notice that someone has died or that we've hired a new important position or make a comment about, uh, you know, the Floyd murder or any of that. I recognize that there I'm talking about the thing, but I'm also communicating in a way that creates an impression on the part of everybody about what kind of a leader and thinker and person I am. And that will either get me some slack when I make a decision they don't like or not. 
so you're being very intentional and thoughtful about communication strategies uh, to me is absolutely essential in in giving you some leash when you make a hard decision because people either trust you or they don't. And that trust goes an awful long way. Uh, and the lack of trust is awfully hard to uh, to to fix if you have not if you've not uh, uh, sort of gotten it and 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 kept it over time. So anyway, that's how I how I think about making hard decisions. You've wrapped us all the way back around with this idea of how your communication has to build trust and how it has to be thoughtful because it's going to lots of people and not only is it the content, but it's the way it's going to be received. And that is such a critical component in leadership, in hard decision making, but also in just how are we going to communicate effectively around something like COVID. So for all of those thoughts that you shared around how you're actually doing it and then your more philosophical take on how we can do it better. I am very grateful to you. This was this was a very feels like a very useful and important stretch of time. Thank you so much for coming back on the show and sharing all of this with us. My pleasure, Mark. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Dr. Bob Walker for joining us on Explore the Space once again. And thank you to our sponsors, Lori Bedke and Creighton University for sponsoring this episode. Learn more about Creighton's Executive MBA and Executive Fellowship programs at www.creighton.edu. I did put a link to Bob's Twitter feed in the show notes, but I do want to just shout it out and make sure you go and check it out at Bob underscore Walker. There's also a link in the show notes to his conversation with John Barry, the author of The Great Influenza at the UCSF Department of Medicine Grand Round. So that link is there and definitely check that out as well. Again, we're coming up on a holiday weekend. Please take care of yourselves. Please wash your hands. Please maintain physical distancing and please wear your masks. We will see you soon. Take care. Thank you for listening to Explore the Space. Visit us on our website, explorethespaceshow.com. And please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at ETS Show. And you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to mark at explorethespaceshow.com.